Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 201, The Green Archipelago. This week, we take a look at one of the most fundamental paradoxes of modern Japan, and one that is both evident almost everywhere you look in the country, and tremendously easy to miss if you aren't thinking about it. Japan, when you get down to it, is remarkably green. And I'm not just talking about beautiful parks in cities like Tokyo, as fabulous as they are, but the fact that once you get out of the cities, there are forests everywhere. The natural world in Japan is still very close at hand. So much so, in fact, that a rather old-timey but still occasionally used name for the home islands is Midori Noretto, the Green Archipelago. Which is great, but pretty surprising. After all, if you look around the world, human civilization has a tendency to profoundly alter, and often damage, the environment around it. That's true of industrial civilization, certainly. One need look no further than the rampant desertification or air quality issues in China to see that. But it's also true of pre-industrial civilization. To take one example, the English devastated the yew tree supply of the British Isles, out of a need to make longbows during the Middle Ages, that centerpiece of the high medieval English army. Indeed, that devastation was so complete that by the 1470s, the Statute of Westminster required ships coming into England to bring four staves of yew for every ton of goods shipped into the country as a way of supplementing native stock with imports. Richard III bumped that to ten staves per ton, and yes, it's that Richard III from the Shakespeare play, who they found in a parking lot a few years back, turns out that while he was willing to offer his kingdom for a horse, all he had to do was wait 600 years and hop into the back of a Toyota. Now, the English U longbow is not a particularly unique case, merely an amusing one that lets me make a cheap Shakespeare joke. All over the world, there are examples of overexploitation of the environment, creating massive damage and substantial changes even without the help of modern industry. Which makes the Japanese case even more surprising, because, after all, Japan has been inhabited for tens of thousands of years, and been home to a pre-industrial but organized civilization for 2,000 years. And frankly, Japan's just not that big compared to the size of its population. One would be forgiven for assuming that Japan, of all places, would naturally have bad ecological damage far before Commodore Perry ever arrived in Edo Bay. So how did Japan stay so green? The solution to this simple, yet easy-to-overlook question is itself simple and easy to overlook. Across the long sweep of Japan's history, Japan's rulers and its common people have been involved in schemes to manage the island's forests in order to protect their bounty for future generations. This week, we're going to talk about the history of those schemes to manage Japan's green spaces. In particular, how they were managed in pre-industrial Japan. So broadly speaking, Japan's history can be divided into two parts from an ecological perspective. The part before human beings were sophisticated enough in their organization and tool usage to alter their environment, and the part after. Obviously, we're not going to talk about the former today. Our story starts with the transition to the latter period, which begins in the first few centuries of the Common Era. 
This is the time when the Japanese state first began to unify through a murky and poorly understood series of conquests, alliances, and political deals, creating a sort of tribal confederacy with the Yamato clan of Japan's emperors as the first among political equals. By the 500s, this Japanese state began to import its high culture from the Chinese mainland, and with the advent of the Taika reforms in 645, it began copying Chinese methods of administration, government, and culture wholesale. The birth of this new Japanese state has two big effects on Japan's forests. First, from the 500s through the 700s, the Japanese government went through a period of tremendously rapid political consolidation. An emperor reigning in the 700s could call on resources of manpower that his predecessors never would have been able to dream of. Second, this grand new Japanese state needed something to mark its grandeur. It needed visible symbols of its new power and wealth. It needed, in other words, epic architectural monuments to its own glory. So it was during this period that, for the very first time, the Japanese began to consume lumber in large enough quantities to build the great monuments of early Japan. This was not clear-cutting. Woodworking techniques were still relatively unsophisticated, so only wood of the absolute highest quality could be used. Specific trees were selected and marked for use in building programs. However, demand for that high-quality wood was both constant and consistently expanding due to two factors unique to Heian Japan. First, unlike, say, Europe, all monumental architecture was entirely wooden. The only part of most buildings made of stone was the foundation, and even then the idea of stone foundations took a while to catch on, and Shinto shrines in particular eschewed such newfangled architectural nonsense for centuries, with most shrine managers preferring to simply stabilize things by sticking wooden poles in the ground, poles that were susceptible to rot and decay, meaning they needed to be regularly replaced, which consumed more wood. Second, Japan's rather unique political organization at the time required a constantly rotating set of capitals, all of which had to be built to the appropriate size, with palaces for the emperor, halls for bureaucrats to manage the government from, homes for the aristocracy, and of course temples and shrines to ensure the new site was favored by the gods and buddhas. The reasons for these constantly rotating capital cities are very complex. It stemmed in part from a belief that new emperors deserved at least the option of a fresh start from the past. It was in part motivated by the need to move the government closer to potential trouble spots. And it was in part actually ecologically motivated, with the capital's movements in part corresponding to locations near groves of hardwood well-suited to construction and away from old sites that had been overlogged and were no longer useful. And of course, it wasn't just the wooden skeleton of these monuments that consumed a lot of resources, but the creation of the tools to actually, you know, do the constructing, and the resources necessary to decorate the interiors of all these places. To provide one concrete example, let's take a look at the bronze Buddha statue in Todaiji, the Temple of the Great East one of the most spectacular temples constructed in the old capital city of Nara. Inside the temple is a 50-foot-tall statue, slightly over 14 meters, depicting the Vairokana Buddha, 
Dainichi Norai being his Japanese name. We have some of the receipts from the construction of Todaiji, and they tell us that it took 163,200 cubic feet of charcoal to produce the statue. If you're wondering, a skilled worker can produce about 8.2 cubic feet of charcoal on average every day, meaning that it would take a team of 100 workers about 200 days working non-stop to produce the required amount of charcoal just to fire the bronze for the statue. And incidentally, that 8.2 cubic feet of charcoal requires 10.2 cubic feet of raw chestnut wood to produce. Good figures for the total impact of this building boom are very hard to come by, but we can work with some basic estimates. Assuming that the best building wood available, which was Hinoki or Japanese Cypress, produced 450 cubic meters of lumber per hectare on average, the completion of Todaiji alone required 900 hectares, or over 200 acres, of Hinoki woods. Using estimates for the number of monasteries constructed over the course of Japan's first five centuries of Buddhism, so about 500 to about 1,000, we can estimate that just Buddhist temple construction alone consumed 90,000 hectares of Japanese cypress trees. I don't know about you guys, but I cannot even begin to conceive of how many trees that is. This massive consumption naturally caused the first shortfalls of timber in Japanese history. For the first time ever, Japanese consumers were using the products of the forest faster than those products could grow. Accurate statistics from the period are naturally functionally non-existent, but indirect evidence, complaints about shortages of building materials, rising prices, and repeated government edicts to deal with both, the repetition of which demonstrates their ineffective nature, point to a growing difficulty maintaining the speed of construction of the early imperial period, and eventually to difficulty even maintaining the already existent structures. Indeed, it's worth noting that by the late Heian period, the 1100s or so, the two fastest expanding cities in Japan were Hiraizumi, the capital of the northern Fujiwara, and Kamakura, the headquarters of the Minamoto samurai clan both of which were geographically removed from central Japan, where the heaviest harvesting had taken place, which is why those two cities were not cost-prohibitive to expand. The imperial government, and later the samurai governments of the Minamoto, Hojo, and Ashikaga families, attempted to reverse the shortfall of building materials, but with very limited effectiveness. The only policies they attempted to enforce were market interventions banning the sale of lumber below a certain quality, which just drove the price of good lumber up, and forest closures that prohibited logging for a certain amount of time to enable tree stands to recover. The latter program might have worked eventually, except for the fact that none of these governments had effective enough control of the countryside to impose closures with any real degree of consistency. It was up to the locals to do so and that made implementation patchy, to say the least. So what ultimately brought the building boom to an end was not government policy, but government weakness. As the imperial government collapsed and was replaced by decentralizing samurai rule, so too did massive building projects begin to come to an end. What enabled the environment to recover was, simply put, that people stopped logging at the same rate, 
not any kind of effective program of forest management. Yet this too could not last. After centuries of increasingly weak shogunal rule and 130 years of civil war, Toyotomi Hideyoshi brought the age of civil war to an end when he conquered the last holdouts against his power in 1590. Now, Hideyoshi had risen far in life from humble beginnings, and this had given him something of an inflated opinion of himself. So much so that he decided to spread his brilliance to the rest of Asia, and invade Korea as the first step in a planned conquest that would sweep all the way to India. When he wasn't planning world conquest, Hideyoshi indulged in that other favorite pastime of the egomaniacal, building architectural monuments to his own greatness. Hideyoshi, of course, was not long for this world and would die only eight years after reunifying Japan. His eventual successor, Tokugawa Ieyasu, had also risen far in life from relatively humble beginnings. And while Ieyasu lacked the murderous lust for world conquest, he too enjoyed a rather inflated self-opinion. And so he too instituted a new building boom. Taken together, the reigns of Toyotomi Hideyoshi and Tokugawa Ieyasu kicked off what was, until the Meiji period, the single greatest building boom in Japanese history. That building boom had a very defined geographical center, particularly during the age of Ieyasu and his immediate successors, the city of Edo. In that city, Ieyasu and the successive shoguns built up a massive complex of personal residences and administrative buildings from relatively humble beginnings. The sprawling complex of Chiyoda Castle, today's imperial palace, became the heart of the Tokugawa state. Surrounding it were over 500 yashiki, the massive private residences built by daimyo. If you're wondering why there's over 500 yashiki when there are usually around 260 to 270 domains, it's because some daimyo had more than one residence. Then, of course, there were the dwellings of the common people and the religious establishment. Here, too, the Tokugawa led the charge, building not one but two massive family temples to house the remains of former shoguns. Zoujoji near modern Tokyo Tower was built by Ieyasu, and Kaneji, inside what is today Ueno Park, was created with assistance from the second shogun, Hidetada. The Tokugawa family also sponsored a Shinto shrine near the palace, what is today Hiei Shrine, which is absolutely gorgeous if you've never been. And of course, all of this was closely packed wooden construction in an age before modern fire codes, and while the Japanese were certainly cognizant of the danger of fire and took steps to protect against it, a major fire, consuming ten or more city blocks, still swept through Edo an average of once every two years and nine months across the entire Edo period. The sight of a fire became so common that burning buildings were referred to as the flowers of Edo in a nice touch of black humor. And while Edo was at the heart of the building boom, it was far from the only source. Across Japan, hundreds of daimyo invested in building their castle headquarters and the towns surrounding them, each wanting to outcompete his neighbors in architectural grandeur, now that outcompeting them in the field of organized violence was off the table. And then, of course, there were the common people, none of whom consumed anything like the number of resources per capita as their wealthy overlords, but who collectively 
made quite a dent. And there were more of them to make that dent than ever before. The economic growth of the Sengoku era combined with the Tokugawa peace to create a population explosion. From a population of around 6.5 million in the year 1000, Japan's population doubled to about 12 million in 1600, and picked up an additional 5 million in just under 50 years. Figuring that just about 10% of Japan was composed of samurai, which is a pretty high-end estimate, that meant that there were still just north of 16 million commoners in Japan in 1650, who maybe didn't need a lot of high-end construction timber, but did need some, and who needed trees to stock their paper and lacquer industries and to make charcoal to keep everybody warm at night. So once again, a massive logging boom struck the country. This one not just confined to central Japan, but spread all over the country, even if Edo was the real epicenter. This time, rather than a couple of centuries, it only took about 50 years for shortages of building timber to begin. The Tokugawa building boom had another effect aside from high prices, a result of growing technical skill in woodworking. You see, loggers in previous eras had to be selective because they were not suitably skilled at dealing with defects in the wood. Bends in the tree trunk, knotting, substandard supply of inequality was just not usable. Tokugawa woodworkers, however, were substantially more sophisticated in their techniques, and capable of utilizing wood their predecessors would have rejected. For example, by using several joined planks where their predecessors would have used a single piece, or by hiding defects behind ceramic or terracotta tiling, a common touch for roofs in particular, or simply by incorporating defects into a wabi-sabi aesthetic. If you've never heard the term wabi-sabi before, it's a late medieval Japanese artistic idea that embraces flaws as giving a piece an inherent character. All of this meant that loggers in the Tokugawa period started clear-cutting rather than selectively harvesting, and if you know anything about topography, you know that can be kind of a problem. You see, there's two things about Japan that really matter here. First, it's wet. Japan is pretty much always humid, and rain is a constant, though certainly more common in the spring and fall. Maybe I'm just a weak Pacific Northwesterner, but summertime in Honshu makes me feel like I'm swimming from point A to point B, rather than walking there. Second, Japan has a couple of mountains. Not just big iconic ones like the Big Three, Mount Fuji, Mount Taku, and Mount Hate, but smaller and less famous ones. Honshu itself has a mountainous spine running along the length of the islands, and the smaller islands are similar in their makeup. And here's the thing, Japan can be a strange place now and then, but gravity does still work there. When water falls on top of a mountain, it wants to flow downhill. And in the absence of, say, tree root systems to hold soil on a mountain in place, that water will take everything on top of the mountain with it. Landslides and mudslides have always been a problem in Japan. Sometimes no amount of tree roots will hold things in place, but they got bad during those early Tokugawa years, becoming more and more frequent as more and more mountainsides were denuded in the search for cheap lumber. The question then became how to respond to these challenges, both the issue of affordability and the issue of environmental damage. 
This time, however, the Tokugawa government was far more prepared to deal with it than its predecessors had been. Remember, the Tokugawa shoguns ruled directly over about one quarter of Japan, including many of its richest and most prosperous regions. While hypothetically the emperors had ruled over all Japan back in the imperial period, A. It was actually the emperor's regents who called the shots, and B. Outside of the capital, the imperial government had very limited impact on policy. The Tokugawa government, however, commanded the loyalty of about three-quarters of Japan altogether by dint of ancient political alliances or blood relationships. That made it much easier to reach the critical mass at which a policy was actually effective. The shoguns did fall back on some imperial-era tricks for trying to restock woodlands, closing off specific areas to harvesting, and passing regulations making it illegal to sell certain types of wood below a certain quality in order to prevent clear-cutting. However, it also took a far more active role in managing woodlands. In some cases, this involved seizing direct control of those resources. For example, in 1692, the sitting shogun, Tokugawa Tsuneyoshi, arranged for the Kanamori family to be to a new domain that was technically larger and richer than the Hida domain that had been awarded to them in 1602 allowing the shogun to assume direct control over Hida's substantial supply of high-quality cypress groves. However, probably the two most interesting programs for protecting Japan's countryside were A, a new system of what we might call forest rangers, and B, programs of reforestation. First, the Bakufu began implementing projects in villages it ruled directly, Local officials would nominate a group of local peasants, the number depending on the size of the village, and charge them to take turns monitoring the local woodlands. During a particular villager's turn, they would be charged with hiking around the nearby forest, checking the health of nearby trees, and looking for signs of illegal tree harvesting, for which repeat offenders could be charged a hefty fine or potentially even imprisoned. They were also charged with taking a tree census of sorts, describing the number and quality of various useful species of tree in their area, and marking specimens that were clearly ailing or had been damaged for removal and replacement. Originally, these forest rangers were selected out of a system of corvée labor. This is basically a fancy word describing a system where peasants are taxed through labor. Rather than paying money, they simply contribute to a project of some kind. Usually, this would be something like building a road, but work like this was just as much of an option. However, later on, it became clear that you get what you pay for. Free forest rangers tended to have no idea what they were doing, or to deliberately half-ass their work, because they wanted to go home and work on their farms. So instead, the Bakufu began paying peasants to become professional forest rangers, and that system worked far better at both maintaining the forests and at getting accurate counts of available trees. Second, we have programs of reforestation, which is simply a fancy way of saying planting a whole bunch of trees. The Tokugawa government began investing heavily in programs to reforest over-harvested regions and even subsidized tree plantations of a sort, where workers would laboriously cultivate tree groves that could then be carefully harvested to ensure population stability, 
while also pruning poor quality trees from the equation, ensuring that there was no wasted space. That process of tree plantations was enormously labor-intensive. Trees were cultivated either from cuttings or from seedlings, and replanted several times, with more sensitive species even requiring the construction of scaffolding to shade them from the sun. To support this practice, a new genre of forestry manuals began to crop up in the 1700s. Tokugawa Japan, remember, was one of the most literate pre-modern societies in the world, thanks to a combination of relatively high per capita wealth and the ready availability of basic schooling at Buddhist-run Terakoya schools. Which meant that in addition to consuming trashy novels and early manga, Japanese of the time could and did consume all kinds of self-help manuals, including ones about how to manage forests effectively. This government-sponsored protected high-quality timber market eventually became so sophisticated that it started to include things like futures trading. If you don't know what that means, it's basically an agreement to buy something at a future date, which gives the seller an economic incentive to invest in producing something time and resource intensive, like, say, high-quality timber, because they know they will have a buyer down the line. The local lords began to get in on the game as well, most abandoned the basic closure system, just marking an area as illegal to log in until it recovered, in favor of rental schemes in which a specific village or family was ordered to actively manage and replant specific forests in exchange for a cut of the profits. Hard numbers are very difficult to come by when it comes to anything economic in the Tokugawa era, due to an astonishingly convoluted trimetallic currency system, economies so localized that money actually had different real values in different parts of the country, and the fact that government interference in the market was so common that it's hard to know the genuine market cost of anything. What is generally agreed upon is that the basics of a sustainable forestry system, whereby the Japanese were getting what they needed from forests without using them all up, was in place by 1750, and continued to run through the rest of the Edo period. When the Meiji government took power, all it had to do was adopt basically the same set of mechanisms on a national legal level to maintain a functional forestry system. To this very day, the Japanese government helps to regulate plantation forestry in a regenerative scheme designed to meet the island's needs while maintaining its natural verdancy, and also to avoid having any villages washed into the Pacific. Many an explanation has been put forward as to why Japan managed to do what very few countries have done, avoiding completely decimating its woodlands as both its population and technological sophistication expanded. Those explanations generally fall into four categories. The first deals with a unique Japanese respect for nature, derived from Shinto and from the Buddhist tradition, and from the prevalence of natural aesthetics in Japanese culture. This one, however, is a bit misguided in my opinion. For example, none of the edicts that established this system of forestry were grounded in religious explanations or notions of respect for nature, and the natural Japanese aesthetic is not natural at all, but carefully cultivated. Bonsai trees may be trees, but they're not natural phenomena. 
The second is a Confucian explanation that rulers felt their benevolent duty to future generations required some kind of environmental policy. Again, I think that's pretty easy to discard. A few daimyo sprinkled Confucian language into their writings about forestry, but it never seems to have been a driving force behind policy. And besides, equally if not more Confucian China devastated its forests during the Qing Dynasty, contemporaneous with Edo Japan, via unchecked forestry. So badly, in fact, that China actually imported lumber from Japan for a while. The third explanation is purely economic, that the Japanese government responded rationally to both rising demand and limited supply by working to ensure that supply would always exist. This is, I think, closer to the money, but requires a fourth modified explanation grounded in the unique circumstances of pre-modern Japan. Specifically, Japan was a closed and highly regulated system during the Edo period, which made government enforcement of edicts far easier than it otherwise would have been, since populations were already carefully monitored to ensure their loyalty. This also removed the temptation that has long been a part of human history. If you don't have it, invade someone who does. This was, for example, how the nations of Europe dealt with their ecological crises during the early modern period, by going to the New World and getting their lumber there. It was thus a unique combination of historical and economic circumstances that allowed Japan to stay a green archipelago. This is not some nascent form of environmentalism, a belief in protecting the environment for its own sake, but an acceptance of the idea that forests are useful for people on a day-to-day -day basis, and that acting to protect that usefulness is in the best interests of all. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Aaron Cusack for donating to support the show. To join him, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week when we tackle Japan's most famous painter, Katsushika Hokusai.